Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. Well, Tim, I'm sad to say, and sad listeners, that... um, I'm not infectious. You've not got much of a voice, don't you, Susie? <laughs> but I haven't got much of a voice, no. Okay, well, well I'll, have to, I'll have to do all the talking, won't I? You'll just have to crack on alone. Okay. Um, but I was one thing that somebody asked me the other day when I was saying that we did a podcast called Talking Books, yes. is why is it called One Tree Books? Well, it's the, there's the, the short answer is that my, uh, we used to live in New Zealand uh, and my daughter, was my first daughter, was born... Um, by One Tree Hill. Oh. Um, so, and it kind of seemed like a good name for a bookshop. It's excellent. So yeah. there we go. That's, Never thought of it. It's, uh, that's, that's the reason. Okay. Well, cool. Well, as it's over to you, Tim, what have you been reading this month? Well, I've been polishing off the Barbara Kingsolver Demon Copperhead, which is quite a long and chunky read. And in fact, I sort of broke off in the middle of it because it's quite, it's, quite, um, it's quite gritty in, in, mm. in parts to read a few other books in, in the middle, as, I, as is my wont. Uh, I read um, The Last Devil to Die, the, sh- the, the fourth part in the Thursday Murder Club series, the Richard Osman, um, which I thought was really interesting, actually, because I, I found it quite... Uh, it's a lot more, a lot more poignant, really, uh, than, than the uh, other three. Do you think uh, I would prefer it? Well, it's, it's, it's a, a build-up, because it's, it's kind of build-up towards this book. It's a, it's, he talks about a quartet, really, of, of books, and yeah. I think he's going to stop this series Old now. Books. And uh, he's going to go on to a different series. Okay. And he may come back to it again. I hope he will. But uh, and so this one's it comes to a natural point. I won't tell you any more no, than no. that. But it's guess. it's quite sad in 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 uh, in many ways. And he directs he directs he does that really well. He does the the mixture between um, kind of dry humour and wit uh, and and sort of poignancy. And I think he it's it's a it's a real achievement actually. So I do take my hat off to him. I think he's done a great job. Good. So that was what that was in between. Um, I'm also reading uh, Nina Stibbe's um, biography, which is coming out next month. I said bugs, it's sort of diary. Um, went to London, took the dog. And it's a kind of... Uh, she goes, literally, that's what it says, and that's what it says in the tin. She was living in Cornwall. She went up, comes up, out to London. So it's like an autobiography. Well, it's a, it's a diary. It's, a, it's just a oh, diary. Okay. So it's a day by day. By day and she goes to live it with uh, Deborah Mogach. Who, uh, who used to have another lodger, and, and, and suddenly she's taken over another writer lodger. Mm-hmm. So now, anyway, uh, it's it's a lot about moving back to London and and recovering you know recovering ground that she 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 thought she knew the place and mm. she's really learning about it. So how much older is she than the first one that she wrote about? Uh, Thirty years. Wow. I mean, she's she was living in London and she was um, I think she was a. Like a teenager, yeah, that's right. Uh, and um, with uh, Mary Kay Wilmers, the 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 London Review of Books editor, uh, and she she got to know all the all the North London literary set. The, the I love that. Things it was great, but the, this is a kind of this is a it's interesting rerun as a, as a as a kind of as a mature writer. She comes back and she's got these adult children living in uh, living in London who she spends a lot of time with. 
and um, but she's also she's leaving behind a I'm not quite sure exactly what it is it's a leave behind a husband or whether whether she goes back to I don't know I haven't finished yet oh. uh, but and whether she comes back to, from London I don't know but so it's a really interesting book it's 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 very funny of course she's a very funny another writer another good writer yeah no, she's a really good writer mm. and she's she is very funny um, in, very, in a very dry way but so I, I, I'm enjoying that I've also dipped into um, Rory Stewart's book Politics on the Edge uh-huh. but, but you're going to talk about that a bit a I bit will later. we'll discuss we'll it discuss together. that one later mm. um and also, I've been I've been dibbling around into a, into a wonderful old uh, one of these um, naval wartime books by someone called Douglas Riemann. I don't know if you remember Douglas Riemann. So he was somebody who was writing. I remember him from thirty forty years ago. And I just picked up this book, and it's um, it's a it's a romp uh, set in. What is in it? The a fiction? Yeah, it's fiction. Oh. It's a it's a. Uh, Book on the high seas, but but in the Second World War, and it's uh, called Battle Cruiser, and I'm rather enjoying that. So it's just a just sort of palate cleanser. You just yes. keep on reading different things, and then you, you just yes. in between it. it um, you know, having gone through the uh, opioid crisis in mm. in um, Tennessee and Kentucky, uh, it, it, I needed something a little bit different. Mm. So I, 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 I'm enjoying that at the moment. Well, that's good because we've said all the time is it's it's at least no, well, maybe not half and half, but you really bring your own experience to whatever you're reading at the moment, which changes over time. Yeah. Is there any book that you've repeatedly gone back to throughout your life, Tim? Uh, that's a really good question. Not really, no. I mean, part of the I mean, uh, some I'd like to go back to, but part of the problem is that I do need to constantly be reading new books uh, for the job. Really, I mm. have to. Uh, be aware of what's coming out from all the different publishers, um, what's new and what is, you know, a la mode. Uh, and um, so it, it, which is, which is fun. It's interesting, but it mm. does mean that I don't tend to revisit old stuff very much. Mm. Now, I'm quite lucky in that regard because I can, but there are very few that I do. Um, you know, to be boring, I revisit Jane Austen from time to time. Right. But there's a book... You know, everybody's favourite on when they do lists, Middlemarch by George Eliot, that I absolutely loathed at the time, which was, I think, sixth form, and then loathed when I was 20, and then have adored ever since. Right. Yeah. Um, but the only other one I read is Enid Blyton, Castle of Adventure. Right. And I know I'm in a very, very low and dark be, place. I think you might be in a it's quite a small minority there who <laughs> who revert back to to the blind. To but, childhood. but that doesn't mean it's not um, not entertaining to do I know. so. But I don't read that. I read um, I read Heidi the other day. I don't quite yeah. know why. Probably yeah. it was just lying around. I picked it up, started reading. I thought this is great. I, know. I loved it. I hadn't read it. You know, read it since I read it for the children. You know, years and years ago. But. Uh, and I wonder why it was lying around. But anyway, it was. It and, and it is fun to do that occasionally, um, to, re- to reread the old classics and go straight back in time. To, it is going a, back in a, time. A, a happier time. A, well, not sorry, a happier time, but a kind of a less complicated time, Well, maybe. no, no, it certainly was for me. <laughs> but Heidi, I didn't read till I was 40. Right. Because I, I supposed it was going to be whimsical and horrible yeah. and more like Pinocchio or something, yeah. although I'm told that's quite dark. dark I haven't yeah. read that either. Um, but anyway, blah. So over to me. Have you finished your current reads? I have. So that what, concludes... what have you been reading? Well, Tim, um, I have been reading. So thanks to Sally, our own lovely Sally, um, just before Wales, I called in here and, and she and a customer were discussing The Salt Path by Rainer. Right. 
you yes. win. Yeah. But it feels as if the whole world, apart from me, has read. Yeah. And again, since we're talking about how often you suppose what a book is about, and then you actually, because Sally knows my taste, as you do, but you weren't in the shop, and she said to me, I really think it's a perfect book for you to take to Wales because it, in a way, begins in Wales and it won't be what you think it is. And I did feel that it was going to be tugging at my heartstrings and I wasn't in the mood for that. But in fact, although, as most of you will have already read it, um, but um, I found it actually tugged at every possible emotion. I wasn't expecting to feel huge anger at the start on her behalf. But absolutely every emotion possible um, I felt in the reading of the book. I don't particularly want to go on with the whole series. I feel like that was a a perfect little nugget of life then. But, you know, I could be wrong again. Yeah, I mean, I I think the other books are... um are different in the sense that they, uh, you know, the, the latest one is, is about uh, walking through Scotland. So it's a different... Is that landlines? Landlines, land yeah. So it's, different, it's a different kind of concept. But but yeah. I think this is a... I think you might be right. This is this was a very hugely popular book when it when it came out. Mm. A lot of real word-of-mouth book. People read mm. it and, and raved about it to their friends. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not everyone's cup of tea because it is, it is a, a, an emotionally charged book. Um but not much to to not like about a fantastic walk around around the southwest, really. Uh, so um, I, I would recommend it as as a book that people well, would enjoy. Well, and Richard started reading it, so to his surprise as well, because even when you say something like emotionally charged, a lot of blokes will sort of back away. Um, but to find that it's actually every form of emotion is quite accessible. So um, the other thing I'm going to talk about is The Raging Storm by Anne Cleves. Um, This is the latest in her detective, Matthew Venn, that series. Right, so it's not the Shetland series. Not Shetland, not Vera. Um, This is the gay detective who lives on the north coast of Cornwall, whose parents um, were part of a, a sort of sect like a bit like the Plymouth Brethren, right? And he can't really, obviously, for some reasons, conform to that. But yes, absolutely. Um, and I really wasn't very keen on the first book of the series. I found it a bit wet. I did find it difficult because we were going through that period where everything had to be the lived experience, and I was wondering how Ancles would cope with having this sort of youngish gay married detective instead of somebody full of angst and yet I completely support her right to do so and sure enough by this I'm just completely committed to him as a character and his husband in it Um, I think they're really interesting individuals Um, so yeah yeah I I recommend it if you if you love it is it a good is it um a good mystery or is it is it is it very procedural or how would you describe it um yes it is good in a in a way um that vera is good and all actually and shetland that it's very much to do with the characters it's very character driven and yet um it's a murder mystery as well where you don't necessarily know who done it okay. but even if you do you probably won't work out why right and it's all interconnected and nothing is throwaway nothing is a cheap clue it's right. very much centered in their belief their small community 
um, and that sort of thing. It's very believable. Good. So that's good. And now tell me, because I'm sure people at home are wincing at my voice. I'm loving Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart. How are you finding it? Well, I'm I'm just dipping into it, really. I've got a a copy which I... I listened to a bit of him talking about it on his podcast. Mm. um, And I thought that he's very, very fluent. And I wondered how that would translate to the page. And it does translate really well to the page. He writes, he's got a... A very easy manner of mm. writing writing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, it's very interesting because it's a it's an insider's look at, at politics over the last um, uh, fifteen years, um, and what you know what actually what's going on in, inside government and what and mm. how it works. Mm. So, in those terms, I think it's fascinating, and uh, I, I think that it's pretty horrifying as well. Yes, it's <laughs> in part, what actually goes on and 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 how people how decisions get made. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think he's he he's, he's got become very popular through his podcast because mm. he's he's able to uh, distill ideas very clearly and explain explain things very clearly and fluently. So which is a which is a great skill. Well, I loved his writing when he wrote about his long walk through Afghanistan and Pakistan and so on. And what I really like about this book is that there's loads of dialogue in it. So mm. it. it reads it comes off the page more like a novel and because he's such a strong personality you're never unaware that this is coming to you through his filter and you can you know you can disbelieve some of it um I personally don't I think that I've edged close to some of it in the past and seen that the, the truth behind an awful lot of it mm-hmm. um, and I find that the, because they're strong personalities and so on but it is frightening at what little grasp so many people in government seem to have on their brief uh, and he would include himself yeah, in I mean that. it's one of the things that he wants to he's he's sort of campaigns about is to try to get um, try to get governments to commit to keeping people in a job for a certain length of mm. time and to commit to training them to do that job and to talking to their predecessor about how to do that job yeah. so that actually you can you can hit the ground running because you're trained up properly and um you're supported properly in the, in what is a you know learning a completely new thing and it's so important mm. for for good governance that that people really uh, have a have a command of of their brief and it's so clear that people don't Mm. um and that needs to change really it does and it's lovely though i mean that sounds as if it's all heavyweight um but one of the things i love about it is like having a cup of coffee with a really good mate who doesn't hold back there there isn't this i've got this really interesting piece of gossip but i couldn't possibly tell you he absolutely where people are strong enough and big enough to take it he names names yeah. but minor civil servants who are only doing their job he absolutely doesn't embarrass he simply says what happened yeah yeah i think that's that's a that's a fair fair cop and i think that um you know it's it's interesting it's it's been our it's been our best selling uh, title over the last last few weeks and i'm not really surprised i think you know i think i think he does a lot of people really, you know, are interested in what he's got to say mm. and respect how he says it. Mm, I think so. I think it's great. So 
One of the books we haven't talked about uh, is Mary's Crescent by Tim Goulder, who's, who's our guest today. And just briefly, to give you a quick introduction to the book, mm. um, it's a book about a walk that he's kind of invented, I suppose. It's a four-day walk in a crescent shape from Porchester Castle to Chichester Cathedral, which goes through the Southlands National Park. Um, the, book, the book has lots of maps, uh, drawings and fabulous photographs in it, as well as so it guides you around the churches along the way, along the route, um, which all happen to be dedicated to St Mary. So uh, it, it makes a really, really good bit of, bit of work, actually. Well, listeners, we pre-recorded the interview, you'll be happy to hear, so I have a normal voice. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine. Uh, we go right back to the sixth form in Portsmouth, and he reminded me that I used to organise walks when we were at school, and we've actually done some of the walks that are in that book which is brilliant so I'm going to re- repeat them many 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 years later with Fan- my friends fantastic oh, it'll be good okay so Tim we're on to our what do we have to look forward to this month well in because because uh, a lot of the Christmas books came out in October and September there's not actually that much new coming out in November just a couple I wanted to mention um, there is a new Jilly Cooper oh. coming out called Tackle what genuinely new Jilly Cooper? Genuinely new Jilly Cooper. It's called yeah. Tackle, um, <laughs> and it's, it's it's tagline: if you want to score, you've got to be a player. Uh, Sounds like got, David Cameron. It's, it's got a very suggestive jacket um, with uh, Rupal Campbell Black is is the is the is the lead character again. But there's a, uh, a he's surely uh, a pensioner by now, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't quite know how, how these things work in, in fictional years. I'm not sure you age in the same way. In, in, I think in you fiction. can choose. Um, so that's coming out in, in, in uh, next month. And also coming out in paperback is a book called Red Queen by Juan Gomez Jurado. Oh, very uh, well pronounced. Which is uh, probably pronounced wrong as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a kind of thriller along the lines of... Um, the Steve Glass and that sort of thing. It's got a, it's got a, a, a lead character... A bit like Lisbeth Salander from from Steve Glassman's books, who is a, is brilliant, but uh, not brilliant with people, but brilliant at, at solving on mysteries spectrum. on a spectrum. Yeah, she's she's brilliant at sol- solving mysteries, and um, so she. It's, I think it's the first part in the series as well that she's uh, that that uh, she stars in. So that's called Red Queen. Is it set in Spain? Set in Spain. Yeah. Okay, lovely. And um, but I thought it might be worth mentioning a few books that uh, some of the big books for, that have come out for Christmas now um, that I haven't mentioned before. Mm. So there's Mary Beard's book Emperor of Rome, mm, yeah. um, which is a great big chunky book, and it does what it says on the tin. It's basically about <laughs> about, about Roman emperors. Um, but well, all not, of them. I, well, it's it? not it's not so sequential. It's more looking at aspects of what it was like to be emperor. Okay. So you know what what it was like to make. And make uh, legal decisions, what it's like, home life, what, what, all these different things, how you got to be emperor. So, so it's about the position. Yeah, it's about the position. I think it's, it's quite interesting and it features all the, you know, all the emperors. Um, but uh, so that, that I think is going to be really, really interesting. James Holland has got a new book out. As you may know, I'm quite a fan of James Holland, mm-hmm. the historian, um, who writes about, about the Second World War mainly. And he's got a book called Savage Storm, which is about the battle for Italy in 1943, which is a particularly grisly. Uh, affair because um, the it was basically the Italians the Italians themselves didn't really take part in it they 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 left the war in 1943 and but it was against the Germans and it was just particularly 
particularly gr- grisly and gruesome. Um, so is it a little known part well, of the law? Well, I think, I think uh, some people don't know much about it, but it was, um, people often talk about the Battle of Monte Cassino, that people know, yes. might know about that, but that was just one, one battle in a whole series of, of this, it was a very cold campaign, it was the, the winter of 1943, and I think it was a particularly grisly, wet and cold winter, mm. um, and um, not much fun. So that's, that's his latest um, Michael Palin has written a book about his great uncle Harry, oh. uh, which has been read on the radio actually a few weeks ago, and it is about his great uncle Harry, who was a soldier in the First World War. Um, who, uh, well, I won't. Do I tell you what happens? You probably know what happens, but anyway, uh, it it he, he doesn't get through the whole war <laughs> that way. Um, a lot did, and and um, so it's very it's very it's quite a sort of poignant book. He didn't know much about his great uncle Harry, so he did a lot of research and found out um, that he was a really interesting character. And he had gone out to um, New Zealand uh, and worked as a labourer out in New Zealand. And then when war came, he, he rallied to the flag and went out with the, I think the, the Nelson volunteers um, from that town in the, in the north of the South Island of New Zealand and uh, fought at Gallipoli and then in the Battle of the Somme. So uh, mm. quite, a, quite a, um, a tough story. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, is, that is now out. Uh, Clive Myrie, the, the news, mm. newsreader, has got a... Head newsreader has now. Got a, yeah, got a book called Everything is Everything, mm-hmm. which apparently is, a, is, a, is an expression, it's West Indian expression. Um, and it's, we, we met him, actually. He came to the, the booksellers' conference. I saw um, that on and, Instagram. I was so envious. And uh, he, was, he was absolutely delightful. So I, thought I, want, I wanted oh, to mention good. his book because he was... He was absolutely charming and really friendly and um, told us a bit about the book and about um, uh, his, his, his family. Um, and it, it, it was really, it was, it was cracking. We should get him down here, Tim. We should get him down here. Um, another one, another non, non-fiction, a lot, of, a lot of sort of memoir type things coming out this, this month. Um, Timothy West has written a book about, called Prue and Me, yes. about him and Prunella Scales. And it's, it's really a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it's a story about their very long and, and happy marriage, which sadly is now uh, with Prue, uh, Prunella, uh, she's, got, she's got dementia and she's Quite gradually, advanced, gra- yeah, gradually yeah. slipping away from him. And, yeah. and it's, uh, it's, it's a uh, good tale. A very touching. Yeah. So that is... I suppose those are some of the key titles. That are I wonder out why. I'm just wondering about this sort of memoir and everything because it went through a phase where it went out of fashion. So maybe they've decreed in this sort of wave that comes and goes. Well, I don't know. I think sometimes it just ha- sometimes just happens that way that people right. have stories to tell at the, at the you know a certain time. Um, another, actually, one thing, another book I wanted to talk about, which was a, is a children's book. Um, Catherine Rundell, who did oh, yes. uh, Explorer and Impossible Creatures, and also she she's she is fantastic. And this yeah. is a new book called Impossible Creatures, um, which has had some fantastic review coverage. Yeah, uh, uh, she's an extraordinary woman because she's she is both an expert on um, poetry, <laughs> and she writes. Uh, she wrote about John children, Dunn. Children's didn't book, she? Yeah, a book about yeah. John Dunn. Yeah, uh, and she has also written a book about. Um, uh, animals. I mean, she's, yes. she's, she's, she's a, a bit polymath. of a, a bit of a polymath, yeah. 
so I thought I'd just mention that. Absolutely, one. and and I know so many children's authors who have read the book and absolutely rate it highly. Um, so yeah, Good. I think she comes very very highly recommended. Well, now you'll all be uh, reassured to hear that I'm going to wait until my voice has recovered a bit to read my extract, which will be from Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart. We were really lucky this month because Tim was able to catch a neighbour for an interview. Yeah, Nigel Johnson-Hill, who has edited the uh, diary of his father, uh, Clifton, who was on the Burma Railway uh, in 1940? Oh, that's the book you mentioned last month. Yep, wasn't to Hell it? with Love. So, uh, excellent. Yeah. Good. Well, here it is. So, we're very pleased today to have Nigel Johnson Hill in, who's going to talk about his book, From Hell with Love, which is the, the war diaries of his father, Clifton. So, Nigel, tell us a bit more about this book. My father was captured in uh, Singapore. Uh, when the Japanese uh, took over there in February 1942 and found himself a prisoner of war. For the first six months, he was in a prison on Singapore Island and then for the rest of the war, the next three years, he was on the infamous Burma Railway. And during that time, he kept a secret diary. Now, memoirs of that period are not uncommon, but um, a diary just telling the day-to-day story, the day-to-day hopes and disappointments and struggles um, are relatively rare. Uh, and this diary surfaced uh, really after the death of uh, my father and then um, it disappeared again because uh, it was too personal for my mother to cope with. Um, and I just, just wanted to come in on that because... It's it's got more than a diary in a sense, isn't it? Because it's like a it's almost like a love letter as well, isn't it? It is. It, it, it really is, and it becomes more so um, as the diary uh, progresses. Um, my mother left Singapore uh, with a, a two-year-old child and pregnant with another, and escaped to Australia where she knew nobody. And uh, so my father was naturally worried for her as to how she was coping. Uh, he felt guilty that he wasn't there for her to, to help her cope. But um, what could he do? He was uh, you know, miles away from anywhere in the jungle of Thailand um, as a forced uh, slave labourer building, uh, a, building a railway in the most hideous conditions. Yeah, it, is, it, is a, it is very harrowing in parts. Um, but it's also got a sort of... Um, straightforwardness about it the diary because it it it, it tells literally tells the day-to-day things like you know that we had six eggs today from the from the chickens in in the camp or uh, and then it moves into sort of very you know dark areas where you know and and you know bill died today so it's got it's a kind of mixture of, of things isn't it 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 really is um but i think it's full of hope he always measures forward uh, to the time when he can be reunited with his family. He very rarely dwells on how long he's been separated. And so each, uh, as he gets through another day, he says that's another day closer to when we can be reunited. And he, I think the diary kept his hope alive. And, my goodness, under the conditions that they were 
they were forced they were forced to endure um, anything that helped you live what uh, was was um, a, a positive uh, there were no medicines um, the food was absolutely way below the minimum uh, level required they were overworked um, and their conditions were absolutely terrible and about one in four of British uh, prisoners of war died um, on the railway. Which is an astonishing figure that, isn't it? Um, and along the way, he one thing I didn't... I learned lots from this book, but one of the things I, I learned is that a lot of the, the POWs book, took a book along with them uh, when, they, when they were captured, and that there was some, a sort of informal library that the books circulated around, and um, uh, Clifton was a, was, a, was a huge reader. Yes, when... The, the, the point is, when the surrender came in, in February 1942, the Japanese were completely unprepared um, for a force of, you know, in excess of 50,000 uh, to uh, surrender. They didn't know what to do with them. So they banged them all up in Changi Prison on the uh, eastern end of Singapore Island. And... Uh, they didn't know how to keep them occupied. They hadn't worked out a sort of work schedule for them. And so they encouraged the uh, British officers to go out and collect books, as many as they could, and set up a library, because reading books keeps people quiet. And then when the prisoners started to be um, sent up on, on railway trucks to Thailand to start building they each took with them a couple of books. And those books were in their backpacks, and then uh, when they had to start trekking through the, uh, the mosquito-infested jungle and uh, it, the conditions were absolutely terrible, their backpacks became too heavy, and so they started to chuck out what wasn't needed. And I'm afraid some of the books were thrown out. But nevertheless... Thousands of books did make it up onto the railway, and that was incredibly important because just as the diary was a way for my father to take himself out of his immediate surroundings for a while, these books helped the prisoners take themselves out of the grim reality of where they were into an, an imaginative world of fiction or non-fiction, but somewhere other than where they were. Mm. And he he did, he did his little quite pithy uh, sh one line reviews of a lot of the books, and you've you've collected all those at the back of it in an index at the back with all the, and you've found all the book jackets, uh, the original book jackets, which is an astonishing little archive at the back of the book. It's great fun. Yes, uh, my wife Cathy's to blame for that. She thought it would be a good idea uh, to show all this. I probably spent longer uh, researching those one hundred and sixteen. Uh, book jackets than, than anything else. Yeah, and also throughout the text, just to say, there's, there's, there's lots of photographs and and paintings as well. I think that's really interesting. That, that there were quite a few paintings done secretly and they were hidden away in the, in bits of bamboo and things. Um, but they're an astonishing record, aren't they? Yes. Well, not surprisingly, the Japanese were very reluctant to have any sort of photographic record. And, of course, the prisoners, um, if they had a camera, that was quickly confiscated. Uh, so there aren't really uh, any uh, photographs from the Allied side of life 
uh, in these prison camps. The only photographs that survived were taken by the Japanese themselves. So it was left to the painters to do it. And I must say that some of their stories are quite quite remarkable. I have a little appendix at the end of the book that uh, describes some of the main painters. One or two of the paintings I've got in the book were actually painted after the war, you know, as a memoir-type painting. Uh, but nevertheless, I think they give force to the um, uh, to showing the condition that, uh, yeah. that they were kept in. And you've also added, um, which I think is very helpful, is a bit of context to what's going on at the time, which is which is uh, a really useful addition to the diary. Well, I tell not just the story of what's happening out in the big wide world, you know, what, 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 because when you're in a prison camp, you have absolutely no idea. Um, one, how long you're going to be there, and two, what's going on um, out in the real world. So I intersperse what's going on with the progress of the war in between the various parts of the diary. And the other thing I do is to try and tell my mother's story. Um, and I rely on the memories of my two elder brothers, who, of course, you know, were alive um, during that time, uh, to put that together. And my mother kept uh, a, a few photographs from that time as well. So um, with a bit of uh, extra research, I was able to put together her story. You can underplay it now. So lots of, <laughs> lots of detective work has gone into this, I'm sure. Um, so uh, one of the things you, uh, that I've heard you talk about before is how the book... I know there's a sort of history of, of, the, of the fact that the diary was was kind of lost and found and then and then considered to be too too dark to 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 go at. and but what made you actually come to do the job it was i showed it to some friends it was in typewritten form basic typewritten form the original diary uh was lodged with the imperial war museum in london and this typewritten form, literally typewritten form it wasn't even electronically stored um was you know with one of those uh, spiral things down the spine you know but mm-hmm. we only had about a, half a dozen copies and I just felt that it deserved better and also that there were too many question marks in it um, where we weren't quite sure what a reference was that my father had, had made and I felt that it needed um putting in context and I also strongly felt that my mother's story uh, needed telling alongside and the opportunity came when the dreaded pandemic came along and we were locked in our houses and I thought well one of the few things one has access to is the internet and uh, there's an enormous amount of information out there. Absolutely well it's a it's a fantastic piece of work and I thoroughly recommend it having really uh, found lots to lots new in it that I, I thought I knew about thought I knew the story of the Burma Railway but actually there's lots more in here that I didn't and so thank you very much for putting it all together and thanks very much for coming today thank you Nigel thank you Tim So we're really excited today because we've got Dr. Tim Goulder with us and he's going to come and talk about his new book, Mary's Crescent. So it's a, a book about a, a, a walk which goes from Porchester all the way around to Chichester going via several interesting places. So, um, Tim, tell us, tell us a little bit more about the book. 
Well, the, the, uh, it's a four-day walk. Uh, you start at uh, Porchester Castle, where there's a church dedicated to St Mary, and uh, you walk up the Mean Valley to Droxford, then where there's another uh, ancient church dedicated to St Mary, and then you continue your journey along Berriton, South Harting, North Marden, Singleton, East Lavent, and finally Chichester Cathedral. And at each stop, you there's a church which is dedicated to Mary. So the link, really, the, the, the backbone to it is, are these various ancient churches all, all dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a stopping off place uh, at, at the end of each day. I've, I've arranged it so that there's a pub that you can uh, stop at and stay at, uh, where you can also get a meal. And, um, you know, the idea is that it is, is a, a, a walk, a good fun, through beautiful countryside and has the added interest of these churches to look at if that's, if that's something you like to do. So, Tim, I wondered why Mary? Why the ones dedicated to Mary? Well, what happened was that uh, I started on this, uh, this sort of idea years and years ago when I had a young two-year-old son and I used to get... Uh, a day off during the week because I, I was a, uh, I'm a GP and uh, well, was a GP and uh, we worked nights and weekends and things so we used to have a time off in lieu during the during the during the week and um, so to give my wife a bit of a break I took my youngest son off for uh, he was two at the time I'd take him off with a with a backpack and uh, uh, you know I love walking so I always sort of chose somewhere in you know a sort of village somewhere in the South Downs that I could find a circular walk and had a pub and I soon discovered that uh, there were nice church and I'd, I'd always been sort of interested in churches and things so uh, so I used to sort of pop into the church and have a look at that as well as uh, going for a walk and it soon became obvious in the South Downs in particular a number of the churches were dedicated to St Mary so I thought well okay let's Let's just uh, look in the telephone directory to how many churches are dedicated to St Mary and whether they're in interesting places to walk. And, you know, that will just give me an idea about where to go. So I set off uh, doing these and recorded the different areas that I was walking in. Um, Then what happened is that I uh, actually did the Camino to... Oh, uh, did you? Yes. Santiago. Santiago. Uh, with three, with, with a couple of friends, and um, for those who don't know the Camino, by the way, it is, is it's an amazingly it's long, very long pilgrimage walk, uh, which ends up in in Spain, and you can do it from different places. Can't you do it from, from yeah. this country, or you can do it from yeah. France, there, or, or it does route, routes yeah. all yeah. over yeah. Europe that, you, yeah. that end up in. And do in, you have in, a tattoo of a shell? I I don't have any tattoos. <laughs> I did carry a shell with me, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> And um, so anyway, so I was doing this, uh, this, this journey with these friends and we, we, we were all working at the time. So we'd do it for a week or two uh, over a number of years. And um, one of the friends was uh, like draw, taking drawings and he would draw some of the, 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 the churches and cathedrals or parts of them as we walked along the route. So I talked to them about um, maybe recording all these little churches in the Downs and this the friend of mine said he'd like to maybe draw the churches so i, I that made me think well okay this may, might be quite an interesting little sort of thing i could put together churches and walks and pubs mm. uh 
But actually, when I got home, I, uh, we did a few churches, but then I started thinking, well, actually, there are lots of these St. Mary churches. I just wonder if I can join them up in a, in a, in a more than just a sort of afternoon's walk. And then I discussed, uh, and, and really, I studied the, the, the OS maps for Hampshire and Sussex and, and realised that I could connect these particular churches. It just was just chance that I could connect Portchester to Chichester, mm. going up the Mean Valley, along the South Downs, and then down into Chichester. You know, there are lots of other St Mary churches mm. in in Sussex and Hampshire, uh, which but they're random. You can't. There isn't an obvious walk mm. between them. Um, and perhaps I could write that as another 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 day. You know, do the do the do the sort of two hour walk to these churches. Um, so one of the things that I think is is lovely in the book is is the is these drawings of all the churches and the interesting parts in them. So as well as lots of colour photographs, there are these pages with all the, you know, the, the, the beautiful west door in, in St Mary's in Porchester or, or you know, all, all those sorts of things. Are they watercolour as well, some of them? Or the, the canopied niche in St Mary's in Droxford. So it's a lovely little, little mixture of bits mm. and pieces. Well, when I started looking at these churches, I, I realised that there were elements of the inter- internal architecture of the church that were basically never used. You know, they were just features in the church, but which weren't used in today's Anglican service. And that made me start thinking about them. Uh, and, for example, in Droxford, there's a, there's a rude stair and, and piscinas, which are like bowls where you wash the, the chalice, and that sort of medieval drawings... And it started me thinking about uh, if you go into the churches, rather than doing a, a kind of tour of the church, which is quite long and quite detailed and use lots of, lots of kind of specific architectural features that are a bit complicated if you're not a specialist in the subject, which I'm not, uh, I thought, well, actually, maybe it'd be quite interesting to look at these architectural features that were important in the uh, pre-Reformation period and then just compare them in each church. So it was just a way of kind of, it was a hook to bring people into the church to give them something to relatively simple uh, to look at because you're on a walk, you're not going to spend, uh, you know, a long time looking around the church, but it's quite interesting just to maybe pop in and, and focus on something. So the, that, was the, that was the idea to try and make it just, you know, interesting for somebody who had absolutely basically no knowledge whatsoever what 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 could I just look at and and so I chose that really as a I mean I could have for example chosen let's look at the fonts in all these churches mm. and nothing else uh, yeah. but but I chose the the elements that that uh, were important in the pre Reformation period all these churches were built in sort of Saxon well probably all of them had Saxon were built mm. in Saxon times originally and then were knocked down and rebuilt by the Normans and then various other generations added on their various things so. Um, Victorians left their, <coughs> left their not very pretty mark yes. on most of these churches yeah, as well. There was, there's, there's all that, and it, unpicking all that is, is, is complicated and, 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 and time-consuming, so I didn't really want to go there, in, in, um, and as I say, I'm not an expert in it anyway. So what I was interested, what I got interested, I, would, I didn't start off being interested, in it. It was in that sense it was a journey for me. I became interested in these various mm. features, so one of the things I discovered, I hadn't really thought about before, but one of the things I came across was medieval graffiti. I hadn't really ever thought about medieval graffiti before, but in in the medieval church, graffiti weren't just kind of like man, mindless, 
splodges done by angry sort of youth youth of the day to you know desecrate the churches the graffiti were done with very specific th- things in mind very uh, usually to do with um if you like um the power if that that something holy might give to you by you doing something so for example uh in in Bereton church there's some very specific little drill holes just as you go in in through the main entrance door there's some little drill holes in the shape of a cross there're four drill holes in the shape of a cross and it's thought that the the powder created from the stone was then mixed with potions to somehow give that potion uh, a magic boost um in uh, uh, Chichester Cathedral, there is a there is a, a game. It's called Nine Men's Morris, and it's a sort of game where you have little balls and you move them around. And in the cloisters of of, um, of Chichester Cathedral, you can see this uh, this carved uh, board game board in in the cloister where pilgrims sat and waited to go to the tomb of Saint Richard. So. Uh, in in Droxford Church, um, there's a thing called a daisy wheel. A daisy wheel is a very specific um, mark that a mason would have made, very carefully carved into the stone, and it would have been through the sort of uh, painted plasterwork, so it would have really shown out in the day. And uh, that is a, it's, it's basically a circle with little um, elliptical shapes in it, and. It's thought that uh, the the daisy wheel captured evil spirits, and because it was a a circle, the evil spirit kind of got stuck in all these mm. little lines and couldn't get out. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of them in uh, <clears throat> fireplaces and so on, on around hearths, and a lot of farmers still have that sort of insignia on their farm doors to protect cattle and so on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did a whole okay. course on it at the Wildon Downland Museum. It's okay. absolutely fascinating. Yes, yes. Some of those churches, but I used to know somebody that said. If you're going for a walk, you've got to have an objective. And I think what's so brilliant, Tim, is that you've given yourself the objective by having the, the sort of notion of the St Mary's, but, but now us, um, you can pass on the baton to go and look at these other things, which is excellent. Yeah, I, 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 you mentioned pilgrims just now about uh, in Chichester, and I think the notion of pilgrimage is quite an interesting one because uh, I know certainly with the, we mentioned the Camino earlier as well, but, but the notion of pilgrimage is not just a not just about getting to a point it's about the the journey that takes you there isn't it exactly yes i mean when i did the camino what was i mean i i went for me it was a sort of semi um religious spiritual thing but it wasn't for my companions actually um but what was what was uh great about it was that it was uh you know you'd be walking on the same journey with uh, with lots and lots of other people and you would um, walk up against beside somebody uh, and have a really very sort of deep conversation. People were uh, somehow being on the pilgrimage enabled or, or gave permission to people to be very frank about their lives. So you'd have a very deep conversation with somebody about kind of what they were up to, why they were doing the pilgrimage, where, you know, what was going on for them. And that would go on for half an hour or so. And, and then either you would walk a bit faster there or they'd stop and have a coffee somewhere or whatever. And you'd never, ever see that person again. So it was, uh, uh, you, it, it, it was a way of relating to people and, and thinking about things in life 
which you would never normally in your normal routine where you're working hard and you know socializing and doing things you don't really get the time to do that sort of stuff so it gives you that space and i think also the when you're you're physically doing something it kind of somehow releases the mind a bit you it can, does you you're you're thoughts can flow a bit better when you're when you're just a bit almost tired out your yeah. your body's working yeah. away and your yeah. mind's left let loose yes the and daily rhythm of the to, walk you can start to um, think broader thoughts i think it's it's, it's like a meditation isn't it but mm. but also so when you're on your own it's like a meditation but i find walking with a companion you're not making eye contact and i find that that's quite freeing mm. as well that you, well, you're you sort of walking side by side yeah. in companionship mm. I, think, I think it's the bit to focus on what's being said rather than all the other cues that, yeah. that when you're talking to somebody they're giving you all these cues mm. I, i'm listening hard to you i'm i'm rather bored of what you're yeah. saying or whatever it might be or just um you know, having to make eye contact is quite is quite tiring mm. it's quite it's quite uh, it can be it can be Threatening. Well, not threatening, but it just it just stops you focusing on what you're actually stops you listing really clearly. I think yeah. because you're mm. you're you've got too many other stimuli going into your into your brain, and if you're just walking side by side, you can actually communicate really well. Yes, and I mean we when I was doing the Camino, actually you might spend quite long periods of time not talking at all, just mm. walking, yeah. mm. uh, and and then you would have these sort of almost out of the blues, some very sort of intense conversations with people. Um, and then just carry on, you know. Yeah. It might not happen on the, on your on your Porchester to to Droxford walk, but it you know. Definitely but yeah, so, Tim, how many people did you do the long walk with, or did you just do that on your own? Well, I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, I I was sort of bubbling away in the back of my mind, and I I really kind of got down to it during lockdown because, you know, it was yeah, the thing you could do did. on your own mm. uh, during lockdown. But uh, uh, when we came out of lockdown, I did the. I did the full walk twice. I did it once with uh, a number of friends where we, we um, got, you know, we arranged, arranged it so that we did a day's walk over a month, actually. We did it over a month. We did one, we did a walk a week, uh, a day a week over a month. And, uh, and uh, uh, it was a social thing in that in as much as we all walked along and our wives met us at the end and, and then we all had a meal at the whatever the pub was. Uh, and then, so that was one time I did it. The next time I did it, I thought, well, I, I really ought to do this walk and actually stay at the various pubs along the way. So with another couple of friends, uh, I booked up the accommodation and then we walked it over a, over a Easter weekend uh, to make sure, just to make sure it actually worked, so to speak. Mm. It's so strange for me because it's almost the walk of my life because I was born in Portsmouth. Our first school trip was Porchester Castle and then I've lived all over East Meon, a bit of Droxford, Chichester and East Meon and I've come back here. So it's really, really interesting. I know these places so well. I had never thought of stringing them together. Yeah. And I'm also a very keen walker, so I will definitely be doing it. Great, great. Well, there's lots of instructions in the book. There's there's lots of maps, photographs, uh, explanations of how to get from A to B, places to stay, pubs to go to. So it's a it's a complete guidebook to the to the crescent, and it's thin enough to actually take on a wall. That yeah. was the that was uh, my hope. I mean, they, they, the I, I got it published by a company, and that was the smallest they could do. Uh, and that's great. Uh, but it's just about the right size. So I, I, I've created a website that goes with the book as well, I, um, and on the website, you uh, I 
uploaded all the maps on OS. So you, okay. if you go to the website, you can download the map onto your iPhone and literally follow it without necessarily having to read the instructions. Yes. So that's a lot easier to walk yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. Tim, that was so wonderful. Thank you very much. I will be Pleasure. doing it. Thanks a lot. So the extract is from Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within by Rory Stewart, a signed copy from One Tree Books. So the first tiny bit, because he is our MP, concerns Damien Hines. It's on page 148 and it's in spring 2015. Cameron read this victory as a firm endorsement of his particular style of politics and it emboldened him to feel he could win the Brexit referendum just as he had won the Scottish referendum and the election. First, however, he was faced with filling empty Lib Dem seats in his government. He therefore set out to, in his words, harvest the crop of talent from the seed sown over the past decade or more. I, of course, hoped he would promote me and some of my friends, harness from among the backbench MPs Damien Hines's toughness, calmness and modesty, Nadim Zahawi's practical if piratical management skills, Gavin Barwell's patient eye for the incongruous and Charlotte Leslie's empathy. The second longer extract is from further on slightly in his career when he's now um, in DEFRA and his Secretary of State is none other than Liz Truss. Liz was younger than me. We had entered Parliament together and David Cameron had made her a Cabinet Minister within four years, when she was 38. I was told that she had been promoted faster than anyone because she was a strong media performer. Intrigued by this, I had watched a number of her interviews. In none of them had she reflected, apologised, explained, empathised or attempted to persuade nor did she ever, except in the rarest cases, answer a question. Instead, she approached interviews as broadcasts, opportunities to repeat the party attack line, never giving ground or varying her tone. I wondered how Cameron had developed any views on her skills as a minister, her ability to inspire civil servants or be patient with difficult briefs. The problem with you, Rory, Liz said to me conversationally, is you try to be interesting in Parliament, in the media. Never be interesting. And yet she was herself unusual. She was known for submitting her civil servants to a barrage of questions about mental arithmetic and popular books on economics. And although her speeches were generally confined to the blandest opinions, she liked to emphasise her fondness for British cheese, for example, she delivered these banalities in the tone of someone challenging an entire establishment consensus. Off the public stage, she delighted in winding up colleagues. In my case, because she saw me as a foreign policy specialist, this involves saying, I cannot see why you waste your time with foreign policy. I cannot imagine a job I would less like than to be foreign secretary. I think the foreign office is a waste of time. Everything she did, I was concluding, had the flavour of a provocation. We will, she said, sitting me down very close to her, become the most open, transparent department in the government and the most efficient. I want you to write a 10 point plan for the national parks. Yes, Secretary of State, I said, addressing her with the formality I reserve for generals. I will get straight out to visit the parks. Then we will get the heads of the national parks down. I will have a plan ready for you within four weeks. 
You have three days, Rory, she said, with such exaggerated firmness that I wondered if she were joking. We need to get it into the Telegraph on Friday. I looked at her and concluded she was not joking. But Secretary of State, if you could just give us a couple of weeks, we might really have the chance to... Come on, Rory, I can write it myself already. Do you want me to give you some clues? Point one, connect young people with nature. Point two, apprenticeships. Point three, health and well-being. Make it eight points if you can't find ten, but ten is better. And again, she smiled as though she were testing me. The details, it seemed, mattered hardly at all, nor did their implementation, for this was only a press release masquerading as a plan. She showed me a picture she had just posted on Instagram. Liz Truss was the leading exponent of Instagram in Parliament. She seemed to be using images of herself in different costumes to suggest a pattern of progress, just as she used provocative policy statements to create an impression of forcefulness. And so it goes on. Anyway, I really commend this book. It's fabulous, if depressing. So that's it from us this week. Um, as usual, if you want to catch any back issues of, of, of this, uh, go on to Spotify or wherever get your, you get your podcasts from. Um, we're called Talking Books on Shine Radio. It's so exciting. I've got my first sort of smart speaker thing. So I go, hey, Google, play Talking Books. Fantastic. It's magic. Well, thanks very much, Susie. Pleasure, Tim. And bye-bye to you. If you're running a local event, Shine Radio can help you get it noticed. Get it in the guide. Our local events guide includes events across Petersfield, Liss, Rogate, Eastmean, Clanfield and Harting. We broadcast them on Shine Radio and list them at shineradio.uk. And if you're part of a voluntary or non-profit organisation, your event can be in the guide absolutely free of charge. Get it in the guide. Just email team at shineradio.uk and we'll help you to get it in the guide. Because at Petersfield Shine Radio... You make it shine.